Happy draft week. I hope everybody's doing great. I'm in a good mood today. I'm going to try to uh, put you in a good mood. If you're not there already, I'm going to try to get you there. Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like sports, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Hmm. The unexpected. I don't think anybody thought a couple months ago, hey, is the NFL going to do their entire draft online? Didn't think that, did you? Well, they are, and we're going to get to that in today's Open. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. The plan for today, Trent Dilfer. Trent Dilfer is going to join us. What did he actually say about Tua being better than Dan Marino? Tua against Joe Burrow. Hey, are there any negatives with Tua? Because Trent's not only working with Tua, but he's raving about him. And there was this quote about him saying he's better than Dan Marino. Uh, people lost their minds. And then the best part about the media machine is that it's like, hey, well, this quote exists, so therefore it had to have been said. So now we're going to do segments off of the thing. And then it just it's unbelievable how this stuff all snowballs. And I don't really blame that many people because you're sitting there trying to put together a million different segments. And you go, hey, what did he say? And I can't tell you the number of times I've done radio segments where – I did the whole thing based on a piece of information and then somebody would hit me up later and be like, Hey, did you actually look at that entire thing? So I try to do that more and more as I get a little bit older, but boy, it takes longer. Right. And if there's one thing we don't like, it's when things take long, but here's something we do like this week's open is about the workplace environment. Because when we think about athletes, we still sometimes think about ourselves. And I think we do that with everything. Politicians, famous people. I still feel like actors and actresses get a pass on everything. No one cares if they make a ton of money. No one cares if they're really in a movie that bombs and just move on to the next one. Like if you miss a shot or you fumble in a massive game, that hangs around forever. If you're in a just bomb of a movie, that next summer you might be in something good and no one really cares about the worst movie. So I'm not saying, hey, the point of today's riff is let's criticize actors and actresses more. I'm just saying in the grand scheme of things, the public figures, the way we look at them and the way we are critical of them, a lot of times what we're really doing is we're saying, I would have done this differently. But sometimes we like to be reminded that the great thing, the special thing is a lot like what we're dealing with. So with the draft coming up, and the fact that it's going to be online, there are all these stories already, especially with the dry run, having a problem with the number one overall pick with Cincinnati Bengals. Now, I'm not even going to turn this into a straw man because I just think that more people are even killed about this going, okay, yes, they had some problems, but I'd imagine that this is still going to probably go okay. Maybe there'll be a couple glitches. I don't want to marry myself to a take that 32 picks are going to go seamlessly when it's all these teams trying to do it remotely over video conferencing with their own staff separate in a way that they've never been before. I'm not going to marry myself to that, but my overall sense is, is that anyone making a huge deal about this is probably making a mistake, but I think that's what we like to do. I think sometimes we like to go out, ah, look at these guys. My office sucks too. This is going to be hilarious. Now to Adam Schefter's credit, he went on and was like, look, this isn't like auto draft. Okay. This isn't where all of a sudden you're just going to be missing your pick. And then the next team gets your pick and you're sitting there being like, no hit hit no you know what I mean like it's not going to work that way you're not going to have some scenario we're sitting there with the Chiefs going wait a minute they got Chase Young and CD Lamb and you go yep internet man I mean granted all of you have had these problems probably most of you not all of you but most of you had these problems probably with some kind of video conferencing where you're sitting there and you're looking at somebody else from work and you're going no 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 the <sighs> I can hear you no there's a it's the bottom right button no, that's video. Now, 
okay, you're can you wave if you can hear me? We get that, right? We've all done those things. And that's probably going to happen to a couple of those teams, but it doesn't mean they're going to miss out on a pick. So there's a bit of angst that you're thinking, my team always sucks at this. My GM is always terrible. And I know what's going to happen here. We're going to be like the Vikings 15 years ago where it's like, uh, who are we supposed to take? I don't know. And the Vikings just missed out on a couple of picks because they hadn't taken their pick yet. I don't think you have to really worry about that stuff. Yes, there could be something to make fun of. And we do do that, right? We like to kind of make fun of the thing that's more important than anything that we do because it helps us feel like, hey, this is kind of the challenge that I face at my job. And that leads us to our own sensibilities, right? Our sensibilities would be, well, I would act this way if I were in this situation. Well, you don't know that. Um, if you ever asked your parents or somebody even older about work advice, like when you ever talk about your current work situation and you explain it to a parent or someone older and they're like, oh, you know, I always say, you know, manufacturing, that's job stability. And you're like, what? You know, like I had, <laughs> I remember my dad was like, well, no matter what, just get a truck. Cause if it goes real bad, you can haul garbage. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, I get it. No, fair, fair point. But I'm aiming a little higher than garbage hauling. <laughs> just side guy with like signs, magnet signs on his truck. I did buy a truck, but it's because I like trucks. So I did this thing where I wanted to look at it and go, okay, you know, this, this whole philosophy of what we're doing with a front office and saying, yeah, you know, I, I kind of like, I kind of like deep down that these guys are going to have some problems at the workplace because I'm dealing with stuff at the workplace. It also happens a lot with players because of one of the things I've I've said repeatedly is don't ever start the sentence where the NFL guy does something or the NBA guy does something and you say, well, I never never fly at my place. No shit. Okay, no kidding. Uh it's it's almost always the wrong thing to do. I mean, it's very rarely can you sit there and say, well, I understand what this pro athlete is going through because, you know, at my insurance place, uh, you know, I'm running an Edward Jones down here in Tallahassee and, you know, I I get what Jimmy Butler's going through, okay? It just, it just doesn't work. So I wanted to try to find some things where actually, yes, there are similarities across all workplaces that also relate to the pro athlete. And then things where it's like, no, you actually can't do this. So let's start with this. Everybody loves to pitch. Now, some of you are really good about this. Most of us aren't. I used to complain too much when I was younger. I felt justified. Yes, I'll admit now. I still feel like I'm justified. But I also knew at a certain point, hey, do you want to complain the rest of your life? Or do you want to just move on and stop complaining? And that's eventually what I did. But we are usually real quick to look at somebody else's situation at work and go, well, wait a minute, why does this person get to do this? Wait a minute, where are they parking? I mean, when the parking space started, things started happening at ESPN, we started finding out like a couple of people have parking spaces. And trust me, I wasn't in that tier, but there were some people being like, wait a minute, this person has a space? I don't know. People are getting spaces now? Well, if that person has a space, what's their, what's their show pulling? They even getting a one? They're not even pulling a one, I don't think. My show's pulling like a two five. Yeah, fuck that. I'm getting a space. All right. You've probably done it with something where you're like, well, that person hasn't been here as long as me. And, you know, early, early on, I remember one of my first radio jobs making 25 grand a year. And the guy that was making the most money also had his gas comped. And I'm like, what? And then one day he was like, hey, can you help me with this or something? I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, all my gas. And he goes, like, I get, I get my mileage back. I get my gas back. And then I went to one of my bosses. I go, hey, this guy makes more money than anybody else here. I'm making 25 grand. Like, I can barely pay for anything. I'm going to the red. And he goes, hey, his deal is his deal. Your deal is your deal. 
And it actually can be something you can learn from. Now, there's times where you'll be justified in saying, I don't care what my deal is, my deal, your deal is your deal kind of philosophy, like this part is wrong. But most of us, we have to kind of accept that. And with pro athletes, when you hear about somebody else making more money than you, the free agent who made more in a signing bonus than you did as the homegrown guy, this stuff is all the same. It is it is jealousy. It is bitterness. Sometimes it is justified, but it happens. And you complain about other guys' deals. We all want to be loved. Now, some people are very secure and never, ever need to be told they're doing a great job. Um, that's not always the case. If you're a manager that feels like I can never tell anyone how I'm feeling, good or bad, and you're just down the middle guy all the time, I actually think that's worse than being emotional guy. I'm serious. Like, I'd almost rather have somebody who's up and down so I can be like, oh, he's up today, oh, he's down today, than the person who tries their hardest to, like, conceal any lean which way or the other. And you're like, this isn't a game of poker right now. We work for you. So if you're somebody like most people, every now and then you want to hear you're doing a good job. And I do think pro athletes wanted to hear this too. I know that sounds crazy. Hey, you make all this money. You're one of the greatest people in the world at what you do, even if you're not even on the high end out of 32 teams, but you are a really special athlete. And a lot of times when you keep hearing that positive reinforcement, you want to still keep hearing it. And we're talking even 10-year guys in. They're like, you know, you could just tell me I'm doing a good job. That stuff is very simple. It's very human. But I think everybody kind of wants that. And again, there don't argue the exceptions here. There are people. I love the guys. Like, I don't care what anybody says. I don't. I just show up and do my job and just make sure the check clears every two weeks. I'll do my job. You do your job. I don't need to hear from you. Uh, but I actually think more people don't work that way. And finally, I don't know that anyone wants to be at a place where they're working and they see their replacement there. Okay. Even if you're retiring, I think sometimes it hurts. I remember when I first started filling in at ESPN, people were like, who's this hot guy with a wicked deep voice? We're fucked. I'm supposed to laugh there. Mm. Anyway, I know that I would see situations where I'd be like, wait a minute, what's going on? Like, I remember joking with Will Kane. I'm like, who's this guy with a full head of hair? Pretty confident. You do this thing where you're going, and it depends again on what you do, but there'll be this thing where. If you have like a really special corporate job, now all of a sudden somebody's son from the beach club is working in your office and you go, ah, like, what am I doing? Signing my replacement here? And the same thing happens with NFL players. I can't tell you how many times you talk to guys, you'd be like, well, what do you care if they drafted another safety? Like you're in your fifth or sixth year, you're all pro and they draft a safety in the fourth or fifth round because they like this tape and you're mad about it. It's like, yep. The wide receivers are even worse. Like, wait a minute, you're a Pro Bowl, not a fake Pro Bowl quarterback. You're a Pro Bowl wide receiver. There's four of you that play, and you're mad that they took one in the first round? Yep. Quarterback, I can understand a little bit. But some of these positions where there's seven or eight guys on the roster to that position, and I don't even know that insecure is the right way to describe it. I actually have more understanding compassion for the guy in the corporate side of the things feeling like his replacement's coming than the NFL player who has a ton of guys in his position already, but none of them, again, none, it's not 100%, but the majority, 90-plus percent of athletes that I would talk to go, ah, uh, yeah. You know, you know how many guys are watching? Going, all right, let's see who my team's taking in the first round. I play defensive end. I'm good. I just signed here. Okay, they just took a defensive end. I'll tell you what that guy's not doing. I mean, he may do a fake post. Welcome to the league, brother. And what it really means is, shit, 
<laughs> I'm now in a rotation and I'm going to make even less next off season. So those are the things that are the same. Let's talk about the things that are different in the workplace. You can't call your owner's son a clown. NFL athletes are doing that right now. One guy in Jacksonville, very aggressive. Although I think it's weird. It's like you're doing things that are completely unprofessional, but then you're demanding professionalism and you're telling the next team how professional you're going to be. I get being upset about it, all right, uh, with trade demands, which I'm going to get to in a second. But all of this stuff, not all situations are equal for us. Not all situations are equal for the athletes. But you probably aren't going to survive by calling the owner of the business that you work for his son a clown. His or her son, a clown. If you get into trouble, depending on your job, but if you're not in the public spotlight, you can probably just hide a little bit. If work wants to keep you, they're going to keep you. If work wants to get rid of you, they're going to use an excuse to get rid of you. But you're not going to deal with anything on social media, are you? You're just going to show up, feel like crap, sit in your cubicle, and ride it out. And be a little nice around the office, probably to everybody, if you feel like, hey, i got to build back a little equity here. If the famous person gets into trouble, specifically the athlete, they're going to deal with a lot more stuff. So that's benefit you, advantage you on that one. Um, and sometimes, too, when you're the famous athlete, it's like, okay, what really happened? And we're not talking about the most serious stuff out there because I'm just going to leave that one alone. When I see somebody get arrested for a suspended license, I have total sympathy on that one. Um, I have an open mind until I know more about it because it's like, you know how easy it is actually to have a suspended license because you didn't pay a ticket and you didn't realize? Yep. But it sounds really bad. Oh, Kyle, really? Arrested? Suspended license? Suspended license. Were you arrested? No, I got a, a a like a piece of mail that was like your license is suspended, and I was up at college. My dad was like, "What the fuck is this?" So you know, My license is suspended. Did you know? I didn't know. I didn't know for a long time. Parking yeah. tickets. There you go. All right. Well, you kind of maybe thought, "Hey, this isn't the biggest surprise I've ever run into." But exactly. that's the point. Kyle gets a suspended license. No one cares. When I see that as like a red flag on an NFL player, I go, "All right. Well, wait a minute. Exactly why is it suspended?" This is Benny because he forgot to pay some tickets. Not the smartest thing, but this isn't turn like, let's not turn this guy into some locker room disruptor because he forgot to pay some parking tickets. So, Kyle, I would not put that as a red flag. There'd be other red flags for you, Kyle. Word. So, you get in trouble, pass. Famous guy gets into trouble, dealing with more stuff. Sometimes he has to deal with more stuff because what he did is way worse. But here's the important one. Demanding a trade. Again, not all trade demands are created equal. There are some trade demands where you go, you know what? I kind of get that guy's point. He's been there a long time. He deserves to move on. Maybe you're a super player empowerment person where you think a person can sign a five-year contract and ask for a trade the day after. Um, that seems aggressive, and that hasn't happened yet, but I feel like philosophically that's where one group is. My group, the group that I'm in, is, hey, well, this one is different than this one, and this one is justified, and this one is ridiculous, and that's the fine, the fine print, okay? If you were to ask for a trade demand, and yes, the very top of your industry, if you were an agent who could take clients to another agency, you would have some juice. If you were a big-time lawyer and you decide, I want to go to another firm, they're going to make me partner, all of that stuff. Yes, there are those people at the top that still have that kind of power. Most of us do not. If I had told ESPN with a couple of years left on my contract, I'd like to go to Fox, <laughs> it would be like, well, good luck in two years because now we also think you're a jerk and we're not going to want to resign you. So we, you just drove your own price down because you're not even going to get an offer from us that they have to top to bring you out there, right? That wouldn't happen. If you worked at Arby's and said, I just don't like the direction of this franchise, they'd say, leave your apron. You know, most of us can't ask for a trade demand. So when someone asks for a trade demand, it's okay for you to go, all right, I don't like this one based on these certain circumstances, but what you can never do in these cases is go, well, that's not how I would operate. Well, no kidding, because no one cares what you're doing. And that's the biggest overall point that I want to make that we all already understand. But as soon as you start going down that road, if I wouldn't do this, or I wouldn't act that way, or I'd play for free, or I would, I can't believe this guy did this. No one cares about most of us. They don't. 
there's too many of us already doing everything that we already do. So when Rudy Gobert gets a COVID test and people start saying, well, how did he get a test already? Thank God Rudy Gobert got tested for coronavirus and tested positive as early in the process as he did. Because if we didn't have that at that time, we could have maybe had a couple more weeks of basketball games. And who knows what the numbers would be? I, again, open-minded, changing information, not always believing everything I read about all of these things. I am not a stay-inside shamer. Uh, depending on where you live, but I'm just going to not even go any deeper on that because I don't want to turn this into anything political. What I am saying, though, is that the next time, as as great as great as some of the services are that people provide in everyday life, chances are the industry that you're in, there aren't only 450. There aren't less than 2,000 like we have in the NFL. So the person that does the thing that is very special is going to have work options that most of us will never see. We're all stuck inside right now trying to keep calm and carry on while figuring out ways to stay healthy and connected when we're stressed and don't sleep. Our immune system's weak and become more prone to getting sick. And the best natural way to boost our immune system is through great sleep. And right now, it could not be more important to have a product like Whoop Fitness Tracker. All right, Whoop is the best sleep monitor and fitness tracker out there. It's the gold standard for sleep tracking. It's been proven to improve sleep performance by helping members build better habits like recommending when you should go to bed and how much sleep you need based on what happened that day. So whether it's the NFL, CBA, NBA analytics, or the salary cap, you know I love all the data. And Whoop collects data about your body 24-7 and gives you better understanding about your well-being along with personalized, actionable insights to optimize your performance. It accurately measures things like heart rate variability, resting heart rate, sleep recovery, and strain. Whoop even has a built-in strain coach feature that actually sets exertion goals so you can work out without losing out on your fitness goals during this self-quarantine. Make the best out of this situation. Here's what I like about it. All right, this is off script. So I can, I leave it on when I sleep and it shows what my heart rate is at. It shows me breaths per minute while I'm asleep. I can see the heart rate peaks. It tells me how much REM sleep I have. It tells me, okay, this is how much you were actually asleep for. And this is kind of what we wanted you to get to. This thing's a great excuse uh, for trying to get a little bit more sleep. Because every time I look at it, I'm always a couple hours shy. But then it tells me, okay, because this and this and this, this is kind of where your recovery's at. And then after a workout, it tells me how strenuous it was based on a strain thing. It is so cool. I love it. All right. I go on my phone. I look at it. As soon as I wake up, I go, what was my sleep thing? Like some of the sleep numbers I was really happy about. I go, okay, great low uh, heartbeat breaths per minute right in that range you want it to be at and then when i go on a bike ride now because i'm a huge bike guy um legs are killing me all the time but so yeah i mean it's just it's fun so i'm going a little off script but i just want you to hear it in my words that it's that's just a little different and i'm you know putting it all together and going okay this is good day bad day and uh what are we going to do here and the more you use it i can see the more i'll start to learn exactly like patterns and be like yeah i do feel run down because now i'm looking at this and the watch is saying it so optimize your sleep and performance with whoop sleep better with personalized insights and strengthen your immune system train optimally and don't get out of shape while you're stuck at home for my listeners whoop is offering 15 percent off with the code rusillo that's r-u-s-s-i-l-l-o at checkout go to whoop that's W-H-O-O-P dot com. Enter the code Rosillo at checkout. Two S's, two L's. Save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. Also, a reminder that during this time of social distancing, connecting with friends over our beer today looks pretty different. 
As the original light beer, Miller Lite has always been there to bring people together in real life through Miller Time. Miller Time is a moment for people to come together in real life to connect over a few beers. But having Miller Time is tough when you can't be with your people. Uh, I would say that first weekend, the thing I'm most looking forward to is when there's a massive line outside saying, hey, I work with Bill Simmons. Can I cut the line? Miller Lite is the beer that makes Miller Time possible. Miller Lite is the original light beer that tastes great and is less filling, which means it won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people. Um, you know, when I see a guy with a with a can of Miller Lite in his hand, the first thing I think of is that guy tells the truth. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I just go, I could talk to that guy, and he's going to have a Miller Lite. He may say some things, and I may not like them, but I may need to hear them. And that's what I think of when I think of Miller Lite. Truth teller. Miller Lite, the original light beer. While you're home, enjoy a classic. Available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. Let's talk some draft with Trent Tilfer. Let's start with the quote or the comp uh, heard around the NFL draft world, Trent. So what actually happened? I know I've gone back and watched it, and I've watched all the reaction to it, but the Tua throws better than Dan Marino. Tua throws better than everybody. Let's just start there, and we'll see where we're at. Well, I, I think, uh, and Les and I have talked about this, Les Carpenter wrote the article for the Washington Post, combined two of my comments into one quote. Um, I was talking about the context of 2000, uh, an Aaron Rodgers junior year in college. I was still playing, and I was going up to Cal and throwing with him. And I said, he throws way better than Aaron threw it at that time. I said, in fact, I practiced against Marino for four straight years. And I was with the Bucks in training camp, and he throws as good as Marino throws it. So that was the context of the quote. And, and less in the busyness of taking an interview in his house, running around, writes down better than Aaron Rodgers and Dan Marino. So I'd be crazy to say anybody throws it better than Dan Marino or Aaron Rodgers right now. But I won't back down from the fact that I've never seen a better ball, um, more potential as a thrower than Tua. I have no problem saying that. The, the kid is a incredible thrower of the football, and we can dive deeper into all the whys and what does that look like. But uh, I've never seen anything uh, better than it. Okay, so let's – I can do two things here. So I do want to back up first because, you know, I've had the pleasure of sitting next to you watching a couple games. I remember watching the Dez catch-no-catch playoff game when we were in Fort Worth together. And Rodgers made a throw towards the back of the end zone on a touchdown where you just started laughing out loud. And it was so fun to be next to you and Tariko's there. And, you know, I'm just a guy that watches. I've always thought Aaron Rodgers is the best thrower of a football I've ever seen in my life. Um, but, you know, when I hear people talk about Marino, I don't know if it's the throw or the fact that it's out quicker than anyone we've ever seen. So what does thrower of the football, what is the greatness of, what does that mean to you as someone who did it? Well, I think a lot of a lot of people, it's the house spins. Just it sounds different, it looks different, it finishes different. Um, Wilson started all this testing, you know, the chip ball, and they can measure spin efficiency, um, spin rate, speed in the beginning when it leaves your hand, speed at the end. Uh, what our naked eye has told us forever is that certain balls come off differently and certain balls finish differently. Um, I would say I'd put those the two, Marino and, and Rogers are the two best I've ever seen. Um, the ball just spins differently. It has more, more rotations, I guess. I mean, I'm not a, a geeky tech guy, so I couldn't tell you all the metrics behind it, but uh, it just looks different. 
And then when a ball spins like that and you have the arm talent to go along with it, it finishes different. It doesn't, every ball at some point starts falling apart, right? It starts falling apart at the end. Um, a ball that has, let's use the word integrity, has more integrity to it, more power behind it is going to finish different. Um, I would say Marino and, and Rogers are the two best ever at that. Now where Aaron, I think, has even taken it to, to another level is he can do it from multiple foot platforms. So he doesn't have to step into it. He doesn't have to have his feet right. And I think those are some of the throws that, you know, jaw-dropping throws we've seen over time where he might be moving away from his arm. Uh, he doesn't get to face downhill and he can still contort his body and it doesn't affect the spin on the ball, doesn't finish the speed on the ball, doesn't finish the precision of the ball. I wouldn't say Marino was like that, but Marino did it in the pocket that way. And there's a lot of times his wrong foot was forward because of a pass rush. He's dipping around. Somebody he did the famous arm over stuff where he would avoid pass rushers, throw the ball. Um, that's what I'm talking about, throwing her the football. Now, I think there's precision that goes in that. Joe Montana didn't have a powerful arm, but the ball spun beautifully. It finished. It was as precise as any ball. I think Russell Wilson, uh, Patrick Mahomes. I, I wouldn't say he throws the tightest ball, but he throws a powerful ball. Um, I think a throw of the ball also has to change speeds. Uh, we find a lot of busts that, that they're only accurate when they throw one speed. In fact, this is another metric Wilson's starting to track is certain guys are only accurate and can only spin it if they throw it as hard as they can. Um, the guys that are really talented throwers can change speed. So think I, pitching analogies to me are the best when it comes to quarterbacks. It's a guy that can paint the corner at 98 and then he, he can change his grip on the ball and throw the change up at 88, but he still paints the corner. It doesn't affect his location. It's just changing speeds on the ball. Now, on baseball, you're trying to strike a guy out. But in football, you don't want to throw a full speed to a tailback in the flat, right? A, a, a tight end who's 10 yards in front of you looking at you, you don't want to throw him fire, right? You want to have touch uh, is the layman's term. I, I think you want to change tempos on the ball. And the great throwers can do that, and the ball doesn't change. It's still precise. It still spins. It still has integrity. Um you hear golfers talk about this. I know you're not a big golf geek, but I know you watch it. I'm a huge golf dork. Um, being around tons of PGA Tour players, and when they're hitting balls, to me and your eye, well, that's an eight-yard draw to a back left pin. That's a beautiful shot. And they're like, no, that ball lost a little integrity as it was going through the wind. So they know as they hit the ball, if they hit it pure, if that ball is going to be pure through the wind, if it's maintaining its spin, if it's maintaining um, the look and feel that they're looking for, Throwing's no different. The great throws of football, um, it's an art. I mean, it really is an art, how they throw it, how they change speeds, how they locate it differently, how early they throw it. If they can be late, do they speed it up? Um, all those different things. And, and in the context of Tua, he does it all. He's like watching a PGA Tour player hit balls on the range. I can go to an NFL training camp tomorrow and pick out a lot of guys, and they're going to be good mini-tour ball strikers. It might be great quarterbacks, but they're many tour ball strikers. Two is a guy they put him on the driving range tomorrow, and it sounds, looks, feels like the best ball strikers out there. That's a great answer. Um, so I would tell you that um, you know, watching two in person a couple times, if all things were equal, I, I think he goes one. I know you're working with him. I don't feel like I'm biased. I mean, hell, I went to five LSU games. No, no, I mean, look. I'm biased. <laughs> Yeah, but like here I am. I went to five LSU games on my own dime this year, and I still, when LSU beat them, 
I go, I actually enjoyed watching. And look, I think Burrow's terrific. I'm, I'm excited about the whole thing, but I do think that there's a little bit extra there with Tua. So, all right, so you're working with him. Let's let's start there. You, you've talked about the throwing and all that kind of stuff. Give me the full breakdown of Tua, player, guy, the whole deal, and why you think this is a franchise QB. Okay, in, interrupt me when I start going too long because you know me. I'll go 18 straight minutes and everybody will tune out to your podcast. So just stop <laughs> me when I start, <laughs> when I start going too long. Uh, I think it starts with what I learned about him when he was 17 years old. Uh, he has an incredible ability of making you feel more important than you really are. So put that in the context of high school football. He was at a high school in Hawaii. They were super successful. He was super successful. He comes across. Uh, the Pacific comes to California for a camp that he's never been around any of these kids. Everybody knows about him. He's Tua. He's the guy being recruited by Alabama, but he's this mystery. He's a whole left-handed Hawaiian. So all these are the four or five star kids are showing up. They know who they are. They've been to camps everywhere around the country together. All the coaches know him. Nobody knows Tua. Nobody knows his family. By the end of a four-hour session, he's everybody's guy. He's the guy. He's the only guy you talk about. You're not talking about anybody else. It's not just his talent. It's how he interacted with people. It's how he connected with people. It's the jokes he makes on the side. It's the competitive little games he plays on the side. It's caring what you have to say. Like he's a guy, when he listens to you, he's actually listening to you. He's not just looking and nodding his head. Like, I'm guilty of doing that sometimes. You know, somebody's talking to him, I'm just like, and I'm thinking eight hours ahead. He's actually listening and cares about what you have to say. Now go to Alabama. Hawaiian goes to Tuscaloosa, right? Lane Kiffin recruits him. Nobody really knows this kid. Jerry Judy, who's at the opening with him that summer, isn't going to go to Alabama. He's like number Alabama's three or four on his list. Spends five days with Tua. Guess where he's going? Alabama. Najee Harris isn't committed yet. Hangs out with Tua for a week. Where does he go? Alabama. All these kids this year outside of Najee come out together, right? They Wherever he goes, he just makes you feel more important. He's the guy. He makes he, – leader, I guess, is the dumbed-down word, but he's a, he's a very unique leader. Uh, he connects with people, and they become you, – you feel like your family. Um, and all the people at Alabama will tell you that. Him and Nick Saban communicate all the time still. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous the impact he's had on one of the greatest coaches of our lifetime, if not ever. Um, yeah, you can tell the so Saban. Saban talks about him differently than, yes. than a lot of his guys, which is always pretty revealing. Um, I, I know you probably do. You have more. I know you have more, but I, I guess I wanted to make it now about the football thing, though. But if you want to finish, it yeah. seems like you have a thought there to finish. So let me let you finish, and I'll follow up specifically. So let's put that in like this. Is called that is makeup bucket, right? That's his how he's made up his soul, his countenance, his presence, whatever term you want to put it in, whatever buck you want to put it in. Very, very unique, very special. I think his processing and his eyes, and we can dig deeper into this with the football part. Um, he and Ken Wisenhunt, Ken was one of the guys that came in, or really was the guy that did most of his pre-combine training for him. I brought Ken in to do the high-level exos because I'm 12 years out. I, you know, I, I'm not up to speed with the NFL micro game. So we brought Ken in, and uh, he did a, a lot of high-level stuff protections, run game, uh, coverages, blitzes, adjustments, calls, defensive combinations, blah, 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 blah. To his retention, his processing, his foundation, all that is brilliant. But then his execution of it, like, 
I was a guy super good on the whiteboard. It's good. I mean, I could dominate the whiteboard. My struggles would come when I go out. <laughs> it didn't look the same. It didn't feel the same. It wasn't as linear, right? It wasn't as rules-based as my OCD personality digested it on the board. So I really struggled from the board to between the lines at times in my career. So it was actually even better when he goes between the lines because he can take all this stuff. And I think he, he looks at football more from a 30,000 foot treetops level. He understands the micro and he gets that it's important, but he's looking more of the big picture. Hey, if they do, if they move that way, yeah, the micro is that they have a guy in the flat, they got in the hook curl and they're, you know, some kind of a gap pressure that we have a protection answer to. He gets that, but he also understands, well, they've sacrificed something over there. So I'll be rules-based here, but my instincts take me to where they're weak. And it's amazing when we're talking to him about the, the football stuff, then Ken and I would watch the film or we'd watch with Tua, and it's exactly how he plays the game. It's like he has eyes in the back of his head. But it's because he sees, Steve Young says, he sees it boundary to boundary. He doesn't see half the field. He doesn't see a third of the field. He doesn't see it in segments. He literally sees it boundary to boundary. That's where his eyes are working. That's where his attention is. He doesn't lose focus of where it's supposed to be, but he sees the bigger picture. Um, and then his eyes, as he, as he plays the game, and again, I just challenge people to go back to the film. Go to the, go to the sequence against LSU where Jerry Judy drops the touchdown pass in the end zone on the deep post, and it's third nine, the next play, and he starts off to his left on a strong side sail combination, and he's reading one-two and kind of LSU's flooded the zone. And at the last second, he whips his eyes back, and before his eyes see Jerry Judy, on a backside dig, the ball's in the air. So he almost throws it blind. He comes back and in one motion throws it blind, dimes it in there for a 15-yard gain, moves the chains when they're down 19 or whatever they were down. Like you can see it over and over and over that he sees it faster than everybody else. Um, that's what I'm talking about, what makes him special. And then we'll talk more about the, the throwing and the footwork and the power and the escape and all those things. But those are really the things that stood out to me as I – because I wanted to study him. I mean, I watched all the games this year. I've always known him. I'm a fan. But I didn't. I don't do this for a living anymore, so I don't sit there and watch every snap of every quarterback like I used to. But I figured if I was going to do this with Tua, I should at least do it for the big three. So I did it for Tua, Burrow, and Herbert, just so I knew you know, what, what the differentiators are. Okay, is there anything that you like with Burrow better than Tua? Yeah, I think Burrow has better instincts in the pocket as he's climbing through it. I think two is more explosive. Uh, I think Burrow has a unique, unique feel for pocket conflict. Um, uh, special, like, like um, almost goofy. <laughs> like, how does he know that that guy was coming here and he just kind of wiggles his hips over to here and then he repositions himself? to throw the ball. Like he's got a really, I think it's his basketball background. People forget the borough was a Mr. Ohio basketball player. Um, I think it, it's just that core athleticism, that core spatial awareness that Burrow has that really sets him apart. And I think, yeah. he's a junkie. I think he's an assassin junkie too. I think he's made football his thing where I'm going to know more football than anybody else. And I'm going to die on this sort of beam The Tom Brady, Drew Brees, uh, Peyton Manning, a football IQ guy. Yeah, his footwork in the pocket, and that's why you know Brady is who he is. Is yeah. he's the slowest? He's the slowest guy in the field, but he'll take one step to his yeah. left, and it doesn't matter. And he knows where you're coming. He just—it's crazy. And then it's always so like 
how it jumps out at you when you see a young kid in and you go, oh, well, you've had clean pockets like your whole life or you get the ball out quick. And like now, yeah, these guys try to tackle you. And, um, you know, Burrow, Burrow was always so good at that. And I do think he's got kind of that. I'm not, I don't think this is a negative, but we know how like the quarterback can be the jerk sometimes. Yeah. And I think he has like these, these jerky, arrogant tendencies, which is exactly what you kind of want out of a guy that, you know, look, that's a tough position. It's funny how everybody gets mad about all the quarterback that. roles and this stuff. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, we all know, like, if you grow up around some of the quarterback, the quarterback in this town or that town, that kid was a jerk a lot of the times. And it doesn't yeah. mean, like, everybody should be a jerk, but sometimes you need that stuff a little bit. Um, I know you probably wanted to go off of that, so we're just we're just vibing back and forth here. No, I, I listen, I, I, I don't like, I, you know, I've done, obviously, a lot of this stuff after Tua's pro day workout and I keep getting asked the question, Burrow or Tua. I love Joe Burrow. I, I would say I'm as bullish on Joe Burrow as anybody out there um, for a lot of these reasons. I think his makeup is special. I think he does have that CEO mentality already. I don't think it's – I think you can be both. I think Tua's leadership style is more of a connecting. It's a little more loose. It's a little more laid back. But I would challenge people to go back and talk to his college teammates and talk to his college coaches. They're not going to tell you he's always fun in games. I mean, I've seen it. We did our little quarterback Olympics on Wednesdays. That was his day off, and it was me and him competing. And I always tell him, man, this is low-hanging fruit. If you don't go undefeated against a guy that ever throws a football, you should be embarrassed of yourself. And he smoked me early on, but then I got him, and I got him good. And you know how I can talk some trash about your leg days and all this stuff. So I'm needling him in the, in the next workout. I'm DMing him. I'm texting him. I, you know, he has to call me champ. Um, that's my nickname. He's been forced to call me champ. But now you, you start seeing the, the edge come out in them. The more you make them compete, the more the edge comes out. And uh, I, I, just, I just, it's different. Like, they're just different styles. The, the analogy I've been giving, and again, I don't know if this is great or not, but the, Burrow's a BMW 750. It's 12-cylinder, so the ultimate luxury car. And there's nothing you don't like about it. I think anybody in the world would take one right now if you had the kind of cheese to get one, right? But if you press the gas of that car, there's going to be a slight lag. You're not going to access all 12 cylinders right after get go. It's, it's going to lag a little bit, then it's going to go. And you're like, whoa, now I feel it. That's Joe Burrow. Tua's a Maserati. Tua is, you barely let your big toe relax on the gas pedal and you're back in your seats. It's just a difference in horsepower. It's a different in how you tap into that juice. Tua's is accessible a lot quicker than Joe Burrow's. That's where I think the differentiator is. I also think a lot of us, myself included, are enamored with Joe Burrow's production over his power. I do think there's a, there is a discrepancy. I don't know if he has elite power. I don't know if he has NFL-style power. To He's going to have to play the game a certain way. Patrick Mahomes went 11 because it was undisciplined and this and this, but nobody questioned this is rare air horsepower. I need people to understand that Tua is in that same breath. Like This is rare air horsepower. Let me give you my um, just – amateur analysis on on one of the things against Tua and, and well before Tua and, and against Burrow I think Tua's safety manipulation as you mentioned his eyes like he's doing stuff 
that I don't think a lot of NFL quarterbacks are as good as he is already with way he 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 looks downfield and he messes with you. Um, I'm not saying Burrow. Burrow just set the completion percentage record for a season and he was chucking the ball down the field. But and I think you could probably make an anti two argument because of the talent, right? Watching that LSU Bama game, uh, Daniel Jeremiah came on my podcast and he said there's probably 25 NFL teams that would have tra traded their entire receiver personnel for either one of those teams' personnel on that day. That's how special that day was. I feel like there are times where I saw Burrow. I mean, even the Oklahoma game, despite they probably could have put a hundred up on the Sooners, there were some throws in there early on where I was like, uh-oh, is this a nerves thing or what's going on? Does Burrow get a lot? Did, did he get away with a lot of like maybe intermediate 50-50 balls or even deep balls? because of how special those receivers were? Or is that something that he may be spoiled in because of who we played with at LSU? So, again, no matter how we spin this, people are going to say this is anti-Burrow, so I want to qualify it <laughs> again and say it's hard to pick apart Joe Burrow. So when you take that approach when you're watching film, uh, you have to be intentional to find things that may become issues, okay? So one I mentioned was power. You don't see a ton of juice in um, Joe's body. It's good. It's He's a very good athlete, but it's not that, again, that immediate draw on the horsepower. The other thing, and it goes along with what you're saying, is it's amazing how many open receivers Joe Burrow uh, passed up. Uh, when you watch the tape, Joe Brady is as good as people say. Is I don't think he's this innovative genius. I think he's a gifted teacher. I think he's a very good play caller, and I think he's a very gifted teacher. They're very detail-oriented. They had NFL detail within their offense, um, which I put I give Joe credit for that because as the coordinator, you're the one that's emphasizing that type of detail. You'll see where I'm getting. They have people open all the time, and Joe Burrow many times passed them up. Um, you see it very often where the tight end over the ball, Moss, Chip releases, he's wide open at eight, nobody's around him, Joe's looking right at him, passes him up, goes to something else. That's why so much of his tape is off schedule. You know, what's people are falling in love with his second reaction stuff. Well, he caused a lot of that second reaction stuff. He caused a lot of it by just not throwing the hitch on time or just not throwing the crossing route on time or just not throwing the first over. They run a lot of double over stuff, and the first over is open. He passes up and goes to second over. I don't know what that is. And obviously his completion percentage just broke the record. So again, not a criticism, but a concern. Something that I look at and go, does he see it as good as Tua's season? Because the one thing about Tua is he doesn't pass up open guys. Like you, I know their offense. I know their offense very good. So I kind of know how they're reading three verticals. I know how they're reading smash to the boundary with the crosser. I know how they're reading an RPO inside out. I, you know, I know what the reads are supposed to be. And he's going to play on schedule when the guys are there. Uh, I think that's something that hasn't been talked about enough. Uh, and then they both had great receivers. I mean, I, for as many times you can say he threw a 50-50 ball up to number two or number one, and that guy made him look great, is the same thing I can tell you that, you know, Ruggs ran under a post for two oh, and that it might have been yeah. a little overthrown, or Jerry Judy made a back shoulder throw on a ball that was located differently, or Najee Harris made a one-handed grab in the flat because the ball might have been out in front of him a little bit. But that's – I mean, I like both of these guys for that reason because that's what they're – hopefully they'll get in the NFL is they're used to playing with elite performers. They're used to playing with um, elite route runners. They're used to playing with uh, rare air type athletes, and hopefully they get the same experience in the NFL.
Yeah. And you know what? I wish we all would stop qualifying this stuff because I know what you're doing because you're already like setting yourself up to the reaction of like, hey, this is an evaluation of kids that have never played in the NFL and nobody's 100. Okay. Nobody's 100. And half of these guys bust anyway. Like that's why when five of them went in the first round and I go, you know, the crazy thing is, is two, maybe three of them stink and we can't believe they got drafted. And it seems impossible to say that prior to the draft. I think there's an interesting thing here when it comes to the, the narratives around quarterback evaluation because people like I, I was the one that was really bullish on Mark Sanchez. Uh, I, to this day, I think if he didn't go to the Jets, he would have been a much better player than if he went to the Jets. That's neither here nor there. Um, but I also called the Ponder, Gabbert, Locker, Bus draft. Like I remember being with Merrill Hodge on NFL primetime and on the draft shows and people saying, how can you be Anthony? I said, none of these guys are first-round picks. There is not a quarterback that's going in the first round. That is a first-round pick. In fact, I had third-round grades on some of these guys. But You were all over the pond. The ponder one was like, I remember you going, and you're nice. You're nice about this. Yeah. That was the least, I don't want to say impressed. That was the lowest level of endorsement I've ever seen from you on a quarterback where – and it wasn't because you were anti-Christian because everybody knows how great of a guy he is. He's a great you, yeah. you were just, you were like, what? And I, I could tell right away with you, I'm like, and Trent's really nice about this. Like, he's a kind soul. And this, this yeah, he's so out I, on this pick. It's just an interesting thing what, what people remember with quarterback. I've talked to GMs about it. I've talked to head coaches about it. Um, that, oh, you were, you were high on this guy. I'm like, well, let's go back and here, I'll send you the report and I'll email him the report. I'm like, I have a, Second round grade on him. That's exactly how I talked about him. I had a first round grade on him. That's exactly how I talked about him. It's just weird how sound bites kind of go in the in their own directions, and and uh, people choose to remember what they want to remember about this stuff. I I I will stand on the table for Burrow and Tua. I uh, Herbert. I have an asterisk by. I think he's a first round talent. I think he needs to go to a very specific situation. Um, and then after that, I think it's looking at the value uh, to your roster. Uh, it's the red shirt guys. They're got Jalen Hurts. I think is not a red shirt because I think he adds value to your roster. So up back and punts can cover kicks, can play strong safety in a scout team, can be your backup quarterback, can be a four minute quarterback, can be a red zone quarterback. I think he brings a lot of immediate value to you. Uh, so I'd put him in a separate bucket. He's kind of a Tim Tebow, Taysom Hill combination. Um, but these other guys are, are red shirt guys. I think Jake Fromm has a chance, um, given a little bit of time to be a good NFL starter, but I, I still, I don't know if I'd, I'd, uh, mortgage the, the home on that one. Yeah. The hurts. Thing, I feel like people like hurts more now that weren't watching it every single Saturday. Uh, yeah. I, I like to me, you expose yourself as somebody that didn't watch a lot of college ball. If you're going, hey, Hurt should be a first rounder. And I know how impressive he is in his interviews. I mean, everybody loves him too. And the way he handled the whole Tua thing was like incredible to be in college and do what he did his freshman year and be a defensive stop away from winning a title. And then Tua comes in. And I was so happy for Hurts to get in when Tua got hurt in, in yep. the, you know, the other game, the other Georgia game as opposed to the first one. But I, sorry, I just, I see one read and, and I don't know. I think that's a tough way to play quarterback in the NFL. Okay, I want to ask Trent if he's ever going to be a GM. But before we do that, whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to, not what your roommates or neighbors are playing. So check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds start about half the price of other premium wireless brands. 
and they sound just as amazing. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. They're both stylish and discreet with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone. The company was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities uh, like Snoop, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, J.R. Smith are obsessed with Raycons. Pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. You know what I love about them is that they are incredibly small, but in the best way. Like they're they're not small. Like oh no, they're just they sort of pop right. They're not clunky. I've had other ones where I'm like I look out the side and be like I feel like I'm from the future right now. So these are a game changer because they are smaller. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Rosillo. That's R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. That's buyraycon.com slash Rosillo for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash Rosillo. Give me, I, I give you a heads up on this. I think I'm going to follow with, will you ever be a GM? Let me just do that. You think you're going to do it? Because honestly, I don't know that you were trying to do this, but if some of the people that have been getting hired and the way the hiring works, not only in the NFL now, but in basketball, people are doing different things. I know you've been offered to work in a front office, but are you ever going to be a GM? It's not my ambition. It's really? not my ambition. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it was. It just seems like you're starting to go there, though. I really, I love, again, I don't want to talk about me very much. I love the um, impact of this grassroots. I could see it being in college. I, I love getting them before they're pros. Uh, I think it's a very different way of looking at developments. I like the pro side and I, I value, I'm not minimizing it at all. I'm just saying, I think I'm more built um, for this early age development, this pre-pro development. I do think too, the GM conversation is as much about who you hire your team as is who you are. We we're gonna have this conversation. Who's the best? And I'll just start by saying they're the best because they hire the best people. <laughs> it's not always them, um, but it's their team. It's their team of scouts. It's how they hire their coaching staff. It's how they integrate their coaching staff to the player evaluations, player development. It's how they tie the two things together. Do you tie your player evaluation um, to your player development? Or are they two separate buckets? Do you allow your coaches to have speak into scheme fits or do you just draft traits? Um, how you handle the cap? I mean, I know a lot of good personnel guys that don't know anything about the cap. So you got to hire the best cap guy. So how, how you blend it all together, you build your team in a front office. I think that's the gift of the GM. Um, I'll talk about John Lynch. I think John Lynch, Dear friend, again, probably biased, but I think one of the greatest things he did when he took over Trent Baalke, who, in my opinion, was the best personnel guy in football, and I would still say that if he was back at GM, but what, what John did a great job was integrating Shanahan's staff into the evaluation of players and not just looking at what they are now, but what can they become and how do they fit our schemes. And how do they fit our culture and all these different things and looking at more holistically? Uh, I think Belichick obviously does that as well um, because it's always bigger than just the traits of the player. So, again, another long-winded deal for answer. It's not my ambition, but I, I do see the fun um, team-building aspect behind it. 
Yeah, because I would just wonder if somebody would go, okay, we're we're still bad at this. And you know, this is where I think the analytics crowd hurts themselves because they look at the miss rate on quarterbacks. And it's something that I've spent a lot of time on. You and I have talked about it, that, you know, the 20 years, first round picks, 50% lock busts. That was being nice. And the analytics crowd will be like, oh, well, all these guys are idiots. And then I go, okay, maybe. Let's see, let's see what your work says. And then I'm like, well, you guys bust just as much as the old school evaluator. So then really what I've the only conclusion that I'm comfortable with is just that we're we're trying to evaluate something that's near impossible to evaluate. And it's not, it's like the things that we prioritize, arm strength and athleticism and all these different things. Like, yes, those are all nice, but they're all just they're just add-ons. You know, it's like going to the parts store. <laughs> And going, yeah, well, it's cool, cool grill, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything and the rest of the stuff doesn't work. So I would just wonder, considering how bad it has been historically with the first round guys and what that means to the team, if somebody listens to you and goes, Hey, why aren't we just throwing this guy some money to just bump us up from fifty percent to like sixty-five percent? Because I'd I'd have to think you think you would hit on sixty-five percent, seventy percent of first round. I'm sure you probably think it's higher, but I don't know that it's even possible. Yeah. I, I- Okay, so I'll use another golf, golf analogy just because it's a simple one. Um, quarterback evaluations like buying the $2,000 set of golf clubs. PXG science around <laughs> their irons is just ridiculous. Taylor made also came out with an iron. The ball speed's different. It's just different. When you use these irons, the ball comes off different. The technology is better. So that's the skill of the quarterback. But I can put PXGs in your hand. And I can go play with my grandma's Wilsons, and I'm going to whoop you because yeah. I'm a superior golfer to you, right? Now you put PXGs in my hand, and it's I'm going to begin to tap into how good they can be. And now I put them on a tour in a tour guy's hand, and it's a whole nother level of of bring out the fullness of the technology. Okay, that is nurture in the NFL. The bottom line is these guys go to a lot of guys that don't know what to do with them. They're 12 handicap quarterback coaches. They're 12 handicap quarterback developers. They're 12 handicap owners. They're 12 handicap head coaches. They sequester the talent of the quarterback because they don't know how to use it. They don't know what an inside path is. They don't know what the release point is. They don't know what rotary speed means. So that it's like Chinese to them. Oh, he's got a big arm. Remember when it was 6'4", 230 and sit in the pocket? But your team are running RPOs. Like, I don't want a 6'4", 235-pound quarterback that has tons of power that might be the toughest guy in the world if I catch and throw team, if I'm a precision team. Like, you got to know where it fits. You got to know what to do with the talent. That's the miss rate. So I don't know if I'd evaluate anywhere better, but I'd make one thing clear if I was a GM, and I wouldn't take the job from him otherwise. We're building our whole organization, the entire organization, around getting the most from the guy that touches the ball the most. Simple. He touches the ball the most. He talks about us the most. He does the most commercials. He is our brand. He is. So why wouldn't we build the entire organization around making sure we get the most out of him? That doesn't mean coddle him. That doesn't mean get back your harder on him. You demand more from him. But it better be to bring out the most in him. You do that, and I can argue that there's a lot of well, Drew Brees doesn't have elite talent. And look what, Sean, look what Sean Payton did with him when he took that philosophy in New Orleans. Drew Brees was a really good quarterback in San Diego. I played against him my last couple of years in Seattle. In fact, we had a duel in San Diego one year. He was a significantly better player when he went to New Orleans, and Sean built the entire organization around making Drew Brees successful. 
had developed a Hall of Famer. It took a guy that I would say had excellent talent, not elite, excellent talent, and put him in rare air. Great answer. Okay, so off of that, give me your five best GMs as we go into the draft this week. Five GMs you trust the most. Because that I might be a different my, answer, but I, I trust, whatever you, however you want to do it. I trust Bill the most of directing this draft. Directing, Bill O'Brien? No. <laughs> Belichick. Trust him <laughs> the most of saying, okay, here's where we're at. Let's not complain. We're in a very different situation than we've been the last 20 years. But taking everything into account, here's where we're going. And here's the decisions we're going to make based on the circumstances we're under. Uh, again, I'll use that 30,000-foot view. And, and by the way, we've handled COVID probably better than anybody else because knowing Bill Belichick, he was out in front of it and started having you know, a backup plan, a, a backup plan to the backup plan of how they would do evaluations, interactions with players, how they interviewed coaches. They may be, it wouldn't surprise me if Belichick goes very um, conference coach specific with how he drafts because he trusts a handful of coaches out there. And if you have a kid in the fifth round that played for Saban or a kid that played at Boise that has the same grade, who do you think you're going to take if you're Bill Belichick? Probably the kid where he's talked to Nick, he's talked to the strength coach, he's talked to the principal, not principal, he's talked to the, the uh, English department head, he's talked to the janitor. You know what I mean? He knows everything about this kid and he feels safer drafting that kid because he has a connection, a deep connection with that head coach. Uh, so I trust yeah. you, number one. You know, what? That, that's a good answer, though, on Bill, because even though I think it's a little overstated how successful he is as an actual drafter of talent. Um, they've missed on talent. They, they've, he is middle of the pack. But, yes. and also, you know, he had a stretch there where he trusted some of his guys so much that I thought he was almost blindly drafting some of these players. And again, I'm not saying Bill Belichick didn't put the work in, but there were times where like Urban was talking to him about guys and it was like Urban was sending all these dudes and you go, what are you doing? Like you're drafting these Gators and... Like a lot of them were flaming out, uh, and a lot is is a, is maybe a, you know a rounding up there. But there were a few that were higher picks. So you just go, are you just listening to Urban on these guys, or what's going on? But but as I say that, I also have to like stop myself from going too far down that road and go, okay, he's still the best roster manager and understanding like how it's all going to come together, right? And you're totally right because at first when I'm like, wait a minute, why are you just assuming that Belichick would be better prepared for this virus? But that as you explain it, you go, he's the one in the room that goes, okay, no excuses. How do we adapt to the new circumstances? And let's make sure that we're all on the same page here instead of worrying about all. Like when these other teams are like, oh, we could get hacked. My Zoom might not work. That's the kind of stuff from Belichick's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Let's just get to work and we'll find a way to adapt to all that stuff. So I actually think that that's, that's a more detailed, in-depth answer than just, hey, he's really good on players because he's had weird stretches where he's he's missed at positions entirely. Um, and he's had, you know, a long stretch of bad drafts where you're just like, wait a minute, why am I talking about him as being the best? But that's a that's a good way to defend it as far as like the top five. And I think roster management, I love what you said. It's roster management to me. Draft day is just another day to manage your roster. Yeah. Right. There's all these benchmarks around the offseason, how you manage your roster. And if yes, who you draft is paramount and how you develop that draft capital. I'm not denying that, but it just fits into a bigger picture, right? Because you can't anticipate injuries. 
You can't anticipate off-field issues. You I mean, you can try to mitigate that damage. You can't anticipate. The biggest thing you can't anticipate is what they become once they make money. You know, yeah. the famous quote: "You become more of what you you become yeah. more of what you were once you get paid." So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns on draft day. So I think you have to package it into this bigger roster management um, deal. Uh, I think uh, the Colts guy Ballard does a great job. Um, I think you have to put John Lynch up there simply. Now, he did inherit some incredibly good players from the previous regime, Trent Baalke, that were their core defensive players. But I just have such respect for John and how he um, balanced that situation, how he's let Kyle Shanahan and Mike McDaniel, two of the best minds in all football, also have personnel saves. You know, also not just make it a trait where they rank what my scouts say, it's where they fit and how they look at them uh, in the bigger scheme um, of their program down the line. I, here's one that nobody ever talks about. I think Stephen Jones does a fantastic job. No one is going to agree with you. Stephen, what? what? No one's going to agree with you on that. I know. I think Stephen does a great job with talent evaluation. I mean, I think they've dropped now. They've, I don't know. This is where always gets, this always gets great. I don't know where it's a Stephen stretch or a Jerry stretch on some of these guys where they've stretched. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that they have a very talented roster that Steven's been responsible for the majority of it. Um, so I think Steven does not get enough credit uh, for how he goes, how he, how he uh, works this thing. Uh, and then I think the team Snyder and Carroll are, are really good. And one of my most embarrassing moments on TV was the 2012 draft where me, like everybody else was just slamming that draft because they're drafting guys from out of, you know, the Richard Sherman's of the world and the Cam Chancellor's of the world. And you're like, we have these guys as fourth, fifth round picks and they're going early. And, but they're just, I think they're a step ahead of not just, I think they evaluate based on their situation. They don't look at it as Burrow versus Tua. They don't look as White Judy versus CeeDee Lamb. They look at it as, okay, who fits us the best, both culture, scheme, competitive temperament, everything we're looking for. Like, we clearly define what makes our guys higher on our board. Now, let's not listen to anybody else. Let's go find the guys, identify the guys that fit this the best and rank them from there. And then not use rounds necessary to determine where we get them. Let's get them when we can get them so we don't lose them to somebody else. I think that's a really unique way of, of addressing the draft. Hey, I couldn't be happier for you. Let's uh, keep in touch and enjoy the draft this week, all right? Thanks, brother. All right, everybody, uh, have a great week, and we'll be uh, checking back in with you. And I don't know if it'll be before or after the draft, at least the first round. So uh, be safe. Be safe.